Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 117 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Saturday, April 13th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. There are people here. <laughs> people are watching us. <laughs> Who not, are they? We're not used to an audience, but we are, uh, we're very pleased to be recording our, our second ever live episode here at Reunion Weekend for the University of Texas School of Law, especially the classes ending in fours and nines. Yay, alumni! Woohoo! And, and as <laughs> yeah, and I should say, as a as a law school class of dot dot dot, I won't fill in the dots for um, <laughs> graduate. Um, I I feel the I feel the reunion sensibilities. This is actually a surprise party for you, my friend. Total, oh. <laughs> Really? This is all you could do? It's quite a surprise. Oh, come on. <laughs> I got all these people up in the morning. That's true. Anyway, um, so even though we have this lovely audience, we actually also have a, a busy week of national security news to talk about. So, some stuff has happened. Yeah, we had our pick of topics this week, especially thanks to our man Julian Assange. I was going to say thanks to our man Donald Trump. Always, every week. Yes, the, the gift that keeps on giving. Well, he's a sustaining member of the, of the program, and now... Uh, uh, Julian Assange is going to be our first topic today. He's under arrest, facing extradition and charges in the United States. And there's a lot to say about that. Uh, that'll probably be our bulkiest item, but it's not our only item. Nope. Other stuff happened. We've got uh, a piece of legislation that is pending. It's actually, I don't think, actually on the president's desk yet, but it's heading to the president's desk. And I don't think we know for sure. People assumed it was a veto, but apparently it's, it's up for grabs. And this is legislation that would do a very Wait, rare people, thing. People don't know what the president's going to do. Well, it has not been tweeted yet. Mm. Uh, the, uh, the Congress has passed a joint resolution uh, directing the, the cessation of U.S. Serv uh, military involvement in hostilities in Yemen in certain respects. This is a rare sighting, a rare bird to observe, and we're going to comment on that. So the Yemen joint resolution. I mean, so rare that I don't think there's another example of this in the 46 years the war powers resolution has been on the books yeah it's it's definitely uh it's there's a lot to unpack there true um and then we'll uh turn our attention to uh the cabinet and, and this <laughs> and the and the awkward three-day period where any one of three people could possibly have been in charge of the department of homeland security i think i might have been in charge for a few minutes it uh, gets into some fun statutory is this phrase ever been used for fun statutory nuances that's, no. No. Well, we're going to do our I, best. I think what it really gets into is, is statutory nuances that were lost on the President of the United States. Well, they, they, uh, they, uh, they did result in some shuffling. So we're going to explain <laughs> who, who was the Homeland Security Secretary at various points this week. Uh, next up, the State Department has issued a designation. They issue designations of new organizations to be on the formal list of foreign terrorist organizations, or FTOs, with some frequency. This one was unique in kind, as Secretary Pompeo described because it was a state government entity, the IRGC. We will talk about what is and is not significant about that and some of the, the more subtle but probably more significant implications or hints that are in the background of this move. Um, and then I frivolity. Then frivolity. We, we've got a doozy. Uh, longtime listeners will know that uh, I probably had no more joy on this show than when we debated what counts as a boy band and which were the best boy bands of all time. Uh, sort of in the same spirit, we're going to talk about duos or duets. Best single performances, best all-time duos, duets. See, we, you and I are a duo. We are not a duet. I can't wait to talk about the category because <laughs> a, a recurring theme of the show and in my classes is, is define talking, the category. Define the category. So, so speaking of defining the category, Julian Assange, journalist or not? Defendant. How about that? <laughs> Defendant. Uh, are those uh, mutually exclusive? No, no, uh, no, they are not. So let's let's dig into the Assange case now. At some level, everybody's sort of familiar, but I think over the years, the details do get kind of blurry, so it's probably good to do a little bit of a scene setter. Um, and for Julian Assange and for the particular development of this week, it's probably best to go back to uh, when Private Manning, then a uh, service member deployed in Iraq, um, became interested in exploiting the access that Manning had to various classified databases and uh, putting a substantial amount of both classified and unclassified material, but material he was not supposed to share with others, downloading them onto DVDs, uh, famously like labeled Lady Gaga, I think, and various other things, like there were music. He at the time, she now. 
He, she, exactly. So Bradley Manning then, Chelsea Manning now, um, downloaded all these things and then was working with Julian Assange in WikiLeaks. And WikiLeaks famously or infamously, depending on your perspective, uh, <laughs> released to the public this vast amount of material. We're talking about some quarter million uh, State Department diplomatic cables, uh, including a lot of very, as, as is the nature of a diplomatic cable, very frank discussion about uh, diplomats' impressions of their foreign counterparts. Uh, many hundreds of thousands of uh, U.S. military uh, event reports and accident, or not accident reports, event reports or significant incident reports uh, from the uh, Iraq theater and then uh, about 90,000 from the Afghanistan theater and then also a trove of documents that were about Guantanamo. Uh, and the access Manning had to all this, of course, was part and parcel of the post-9-11 push to learn from the lessons of the pre-9-11 period, the ostensible lessons uh, one of which was you need to make sure more people have access to all the dots so we can put the dots together. But of course, when you make that move, you run the risk that somebody who's going to uh, expose the, this information can access a lot of it, which is what happened there. Now, uh, Manning eventually uh, would famously be court-martialed and convicted uh, for disclosure of national defense information and was serving a long sentence, eventually was commuted in that sentence went on to run against Senator Cardin for, for office, came in second, I believe, uh, uh, and now I believe is currently in prison for, on contempt of uh, court for refusing to testify before the same grand jury, it seems, that produced in 2018 an indictment of Julian Assange. And so the Assange investigation has led to Manning being back in jail. But in any event, Julian Assange has been holed up in the embassy of Ecuador in London until last week for many, many years. Like seven years? Something like that. And there, there's been some pretty crazy stories that have come out of his time there. Uh, apparently, he was prone to playing music at all hours of the night, walking around in his underwear. I mean, you, you live in a you small office for seven years in a place, and you pick up some perhaps bad roommate habits. Um, I wouldn't know. The, uh, the way <laughs> We don't share an office. <laughs> God help us. Apparently, apparently part of what triggered, uh, there's a couple of things at work, what's going on here. In the background, statute of limitations ticking away. And we're going to have more to say about the statute of limitations on any U.S. charges against uh, Assange for the, uh, for the Manning episode pretty soon. But also uh, changing uh, leadership in Ecuador, President Moreno apparently increasingly at odds with Assange in the WikiLeaks organization over time in the, the papers in the past couple of days reporting that uh, at least Moreno and his people are saying that the WikiLeaks people were beginning to threaten to extort him with exposing information about him or people around him. And so they authorized, they gave the British a window in which they were authorized to enter the embassy and remove Assange, which is what duly happened. So in the meantime, there's been huge anxiety in the American media community, in American journalism communities, all this time wondering if Assange were ever charged, would this be a significant crossing of the Rubicon with respects to freedom of the press? Steve, can you talk about why uh, traditional media, not, not just sort of uh, Julian Assange's advocates, but mainstream media, Washington Post, New York Times, people have been very worried. Yeah, why? I mean, so the, the concern is the, the relevant statute here is a statute called the Espionage Act, which dates all the way back to 1917. And one of the things about the Espionage Act that I think is really interesting and awkward is that it was drafted before um, any of the sort of modern Supreme Court jurisprudence basically breathing life into the modern First Amendment. Um, and so the Espionage is actually, uh, the Espionage Act is unusually broad, capacious, and vague um, as statutes restricting speech tend to be. Um, there are two different key provisions. 18 U.S.C. Section 793D is focused on the crime of unlawfully removing uh, national security information if you have lawful access to it. Um, and so the idea is 793D is the crime of the leaker or the spy who has valid access. Um, the thing that the press was principally concerned about was 793E, which is about um, unauthorized individuals having access to, having possession of, retaining national security information without returning it to the government. Um, and the concern was that both that statute and another provision of the Espionage Act that refers even more specifically to publication could be used to go after a journalist um, who publishes classified national security information in the New York Times and the Washington Post on the internet um, because they are not just possessing 
national security information without authorization, but they are actually redistributing it. And so the concern was that this would be a huge test case because whatever we might think of Assange, the line that would be crossed is the government has never successfully prosecuted a downstream recipient of classified information. They've never prosecuted, they never successfully prosecuted a third party to a leak under the Espionage Act. They tried um, back in the last decade um, in a case involving two uh, lobbyists for APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Um, but that case fell apart largely because of First Amendment concerns. And so the, the real sort of elephant in the room with an Assange indictment was whether he was going to be indicted for conduct that whatever we think of him looks not that different from what the best reporters for your favorite newspapers are doing, or whether he was going to be indicted for a crime that was unrelated to news gathering. So one might feel that, well, they're distinguishable. It's a categorical distinction. WikiLeaks and Julian Assange are over here. Charlie Savage and The New York Times are over there. That's just different. But when you begin to press on that distinction and you try to identify very firm lines between the downstream recipient of leaked classified information, uh, it's not at all obvious you could really hold that line. So not, that, not only that, but the Supreme Court has, I think, been properly reluctant to ever give special status to credentialed media organizations um, for two reasons. One, you don't want a media organization to be beholden to the government for its credentials. Um, but two, I mean, Thomas Paine was, a free, was an amateur. Right. Um, you know, we have a long tradition in this country of citizen journalism. And so I think both of those pressures are why, you know, the law does not treat or formally the New York Times any differently from, I mean, you know, I should say this Infowars, right, or WikiLeaks. <laughs> there's, a, there's a loaded example right there. Uh, so, so there's been just years and years of larvae articles and opinions and speculation. and, and the, many, many by me. <laughs> including, especially by Steve. Uh, and, and a few glimpses behind the curtain from time to time you'd hear stories about, yes, you know, prosecutors and folks in the Justice Department under you know, both administrations wrestling with these thorny questions, trying to figure out, is there not some way to take some action against Julian Assange? Um, there were a few people, and I think maybe Orrin Kerr was among them, people who had speculated that the particular nature, the particular fact pattern of how Manning and Assange interacted may well have provided an alternative charging foundation. And the indictment that dropped last week is exactly that. So the charge is not the Espionage Act. The charge is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The indictment, which is, you know, a lot of people wondering, is this just the placeholder? Will there be superseding charges later on? The extradition will interact with that in an interesting way. Um, it charges a violation of 18 U.S. Code Section 1030. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act uh, is famously not really one federal crime, but a collection of federal crimes relating to computers. Um, some of them sound like hacking. Some are, are a little bit different, and they're about uh, theft or, or marketing of stolen credentials for logging into uh, protected systems. The first two provisions are both at issue here. Uh, 1030A1 makes it a crime to uh, gain unauthorized access to a computer, or if you have authorized access but you exceed the boundaries of that authority, either one of those forms of getting into a part of the computer you're not supposed to, um, if you exceed or, or have unauthorized access and gain national defense information, the disclosure of which would be harmful or could be harmful to U.S. national security, that's a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. That's the central charge here. There's also a charge under the second part of the CFAA, 1030A2, which refers to unauthorized access to a U.S. government computer kind of period. So there, there's an overlap. So these charges have overlapping fact patterns. Um, why do they think there was hacking involved here? And, and how does it turn into what it is, in this case, a conspiracy charge? The claim is that Manning and Assange, yes, they had this larger information disclosure relationship, but there came a moment, a, a tactical moment in their joint operation to get this information into the public's view in which uh, they wanted to hack another user's password so that Manning could operate under someone else's credentials and thus have a better chance of not getting caught. So we're told in the indictment, it is alleged in the indictment that Manning took 
a hash is sort of the encrypted representation of, of the actual content. It took a, a hashed password for another user, passed that to Assange, knowing that Assange would use his methods to try to hack that or to break that encryption on that hash so they could discover what somebody else's credential password was. Then he could pass it back to Manning and Manning could log in as somebody else and basically screw over one of his colleagues so that he could continue downloading this information. Um, that action, attempting to conspiring and agreeing to attempt to uh, access this credential that they didn't have, that's the nut of the charge. And what you see here, I think we agree on this, Steve, very clearly DOJ is trying to avoid, they want to charge Assange clearly very badly, but they want to do it in a way that doesn't actually cross the Rubicon we just described that has all of more traditional media space very concerned. So did they succeed, do you think? Mostly. Um, I mean, I think, so, so I, I have, I, there, are two, there are two sort of qualifications to my answer. I mean, I think first it depends on whether this is the last indictment we're going to see for Assange. And, and, yeah. we, and that, as you've already sort of foreshadowed, that's going to factor also into the extradition conversation. Um, but even if this is it, even if this is the sole charge that the government proffers against Assange, the charge itself, um, I think Bobby does a nice job of sort of walking up to the Rubicon and stopping, um, right? But there are some sort of ways that Assange's conduct is described in the indictment um, that I think is a little troubling in the sense that like some of his activities were clearly not conventional news gathering, but some of them were. Um, right, that like, you know, a good reporter, I mean, th th it's, it's not the case that the typical reporter sits at his desk waiting for someone to anonymously mail him, you know, a box of classified information, right? That there's a lot of source cultivation and a lot of back and forth that goes on, even with what I think you and I would both agree is responsible, you know, mainstream journalism. No, that's fair. There's a lot of cajoling and relationship building and encouragement that goes on. And so, and so the parts of the indictment that sort of focus on Assange's encouragement and Assange's sort of, you know, support to Bradley, now Chelsea Manning, um, I would have been better if that hadn't been like, I would have felt better if that hadn't been such a, a big part of the story because that looks more like what reporters do. So I've seen a lot of commentary online that's really seized on this because in the listing of overt acts, which is a very short list, that this is a very, uh, very brief indictment. This isn't mm -hmm. a full speaking indictment. Um, the listing of overt acts and the listing of means and methods of the conspiracy both, of course, give a bunch of details. And yes, the password cracking scheme is part of that, but there's a lot of other stuff mentioned as well. I think... I think we'd probably agree on this. Strictly speaking, none of that means that the government's claiming that they would or could prosecute for all those things minus the password cracking. It's written in a way that's meant to have it all hinge on the password cracking. But the presence of these other references has alarmed people. And I see this as being very similar to what happens in some speech-sensitive material support mm -hmm. to terrorism prosecutions, where a lot of the indictment will reference things someone said. Why? Because it's indicative of state of mind. It's indicative of intent. It's relevant context. It's all, I think, perfectly properly in there. But people who maybe aren't looking at it that formally, especially non-lawyers, but who are concerned more generally about the charge, will look at that and say, oh, basically, it's, it's like they're being charged for their speech. I don't think that's right. I don't think they are being charged for their speech. I think it's got to be the case that DOJ needs to be able to put that context in there. I, I get it why, especially non-lawyers, are seeing that and wondering, like, but they're charging him for that. It's in the indictment. I don't think they're charging him. No, no, oh, no, I don't either. I mean, that's why my answer was mostly. I mean, I yeah. write the, you know, like 85% if we had to quantify, right? I just, I just, my concern is just, you know, the question is, are you chilling what I would want, you know, the sort of journalists with integrity to, to be doing? And I don't, I think the answer is no. I think the, the good journalists are smart enough to read the indictment and understand that, like, yes, I cannot actually, you know, help my source hack into a government computer. Um, but if, if that so if that's the line, I'm comfortable with that line. Yeah. The indictment itself is not 100% clear that that's where the government thinks the line is is or where it will choose to draw it in the future. So there's there's another thing that's not clear in the indictment. I, th I think it's quite interesting. I'm, I'm curious about it. It's the nature of the conspiracy charge. So as many people in the room will know, uh, conspiracy, there's a standalone federal conspiracy statute, 18 U.S. Code 371. Uh, you can use that to map onto whatever other federal crimes that don't happen to specifically list conspiracy as a means of liability in them and still get a conspiracy charge. So it's kind of a catch-all. Um, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act has its own conspiracy provision, 1030, uh, I think it's B, uh, provides for conspiracy liability. The indictment uses the generic catch-all, section 371, which I, I think that's, that in itself is kind of curious. 
Um, and it led, I think, that helped get people starting to think in terms of the statute of limitations. Was, right. was that what's going on here? I don't, I don't think it is. I, I don't know why it's done that way. But the statute of limitations conversation is very interesting because the general statute of limitations— By the way, only you and I would—, would that, I just would, want to would describe that, that as interesting. The statute of limitations is very interesting. <laughs> this happens a lot on this show. Indeed. Uh, five years, long gone. Unless one of the handful of federal statute of limitations extension statutes might apply, at first blush, it seems none of them do. But there's one that does. It's the terrorism extender. So uh, 18 U.S. Code, is it uh, 3286, provides for an eight That old year, chestnut. That old chestnut. By the way, we say that a lot on the show, too. Chestnut. Thank you. See? Uh, so 18 U.S. Code 3286 includes uh, an eight-year statute of limitations, which is just enough to have gotten this indictment uh, for a, a variety of, of offenses that are found in the terrorism chapters or, or sections of Title 18. One of those listed there is the uh, offense 18 U.S. Code 2332B, which is for transnational terrorism. None of this sounds very relevant or should sound relevant, but if you parse 2332B, you find within it, deep within the bowels of 2332B, a listing and enumeration of federal offenses that can count as federal offenses of terrorism that statute can attach to. And on that list is one subpart of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, 1030A1, the one where you hack to get national defense information. Um, a few people have noticed this before and lamented the inclusion of that at, under the heading of terrorism, but we're not really talking about whether it belongs there. Uh, we're talking about whether it is there right now as a matter of what the federal statute of limitations is. It is there, for better or worse, and that means it's eight years when that's the charge. That's the charge here. That's how they got the statute of limitations where it is. Um, so I think that rounds out sort of the, the initial uh, capture if you will, and, and charge. The next big battle is going to be over extradition. Um, some people have wondered, will he be extradited? Because people may be aware, like the Lori Love case, and there have been a couple of other cases in which the United States has tried to extradite hackers from the United Kingdom and not succeeded. It's happened successfully, sometimes not others. So a number of journalists I spoke with said, well, so this will be like Lori Love. They can't extradite him. Uh, there's a couple of cases where defendants facing extradition who had uh, significant Asperger's syndrome uh, claims were able to convince British authorities, in one case the courts, in the other case the, the prime minister, uh, to not support extradition on the grounds that being incarcerated and facing the U.S. criminal justice system combined with the medical condition was going to cause a problem. Wait, by, by the way, on, on, the, on the principle that should bother the hell out of all of us, that the U.S. criminal justice system can't comport with the human rights requirements of the European Convention. No, that's right. It's not like these were cases with the death penalty on the table or some other thing where there's a more serious discussion. Oh, no, I'm bothered in the other direction. That a reasonable oh. court could conclude that the U.S. Like, I mean, it speaks ill to me of the U.S. criminal justice system. I was about system. to high five you. I thought you were taking offense on behalf of the Bureau of Prisons like I was. No. No, not so much. No. All right. Well, nonetheless, so we do disagree from time to time. Um, I don't think that that argument's going to, whatever, whatever Assange may claim about his medical condition in an attempt to avoid extradition, I doubt that works. Then there's dual criminality. You can't be extradited from one place to another under most extradition treaties, if not all of them. Including the U.S.-U.K. treaty. Unless there's uh, a commonality of the offenses. Uh, they have a Computer Misuse Act, and, and there, this has been used before. That won't be an issue. So I think he's coming. Um, so I, I think you, I, I have one other sort of possibility, um, which is under Article 4 of the U.S.-U.K. Treaty. I, I went and read this yesterday. Oh. I know. Um, something new and different for me. I prepared. Um, under Article 4 <laughs> of the U.S.-U.K. Extradition Treaty, um, like most extradition treaties, there's a political offense exception. Um, I don't think that the violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, right, that's charged in the current indictment, um, would be deemed a political offense, either by the, the British courts or by the British government. Um, but if the government were to, if the U.S., between now and the time of extradition, which could be some time from now, were to unveil additional charges that get closer to that publication line, um, or additional charges perhaps related to WikiLeaks's um, troubling role in the 2016 election, um, then I think we get into much murkier territory. Yeah, there is. Uh, I will just note that WikiLeaks has never, as far as I know, released a single document about Russia. And that's all I have to say about that. Um, but and then so so there's the political offense exception, uh, and then there's also something called the rule of specialty, um, which is that you're not supposed to be able to extradite someone and then 
drop, drop a whole bunch of new charges on them, right? That you're supposed that the the prosecution is supposed to be based on the indictment at the time of extradition. Yeah. So. Um, if this is it, like if this is the only charge the government ever wants to bring against Julian Assange, I think it'll be a pretty clean extradition. If it's not, that's when it gets messier. Yeah. All right. So in the interest of time, we'll pick up the pace and move on to the Yemen War Powers Resolution. Uh, Senate, from London to Yemen. Yeah, from London to Yemen. Moving around the globe, Seriously. Senate Joint Resolution 7 has uh, passed both houses of Congress, and it directs the executive branch to withdraw U.S. military forces from hostilities, and I'm using that as a term of art here, that's where the action is, from hostilities in Yemen in support of the Saudi-led coalition that's fighting the Houthis. The, the resolution is very clear that it is not directing any change to U.S. military involvement in Yemen vis-a-vis -vis, uh, other activities. That would be the, the conflict with al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, which is still uh, going on at its same sort of on-again, off-again pace. Right. Basically, that there, there are two totally different conflicts in Yemen right now in which the United States is involved, and this is directed at one of them. So the this bill's kicked around for a while. There have been there have been multiple veto threats, statements of administration policy, SAPs that declare that the president's advisors will recommend that he veto the bill. Um, the main thrust of, of the argument from the executive branch has been that the claim that what we've been doing to support the Saudi coalition, the claim that it counts as hostilities in the first instance is a, is a mistaken application of the term. And the underlying argument is based on precedent going back to both administrations, but I think the biggest example would have to be President Obama's military intervention in Libya back in 2011, where the question arose and was hotly debated and very publicly debated, were we not, by engaging in massive air bombardment uh, of the then Qaddafi regime, were we not engaged in hostilities there? And the administration's claim was, no, because hostility is a term of art that actually requires uh, multiplicity of factors. You take it in the totality, but the, the, the key thing that wasn't there was ground presence and an intent to have that lasting presence connected with ground forces, although we did actually have some people on the ground, but not in the way they meant an exceedingly narrow definition of hostilities. If that's the right definition, then nothing we're doing with the Saudi coalition counts as hostilities either, because what we're doing is air-to-air -air refueling, uh, arms sales, and intelligence support as sort of the big three. Now, eventually, the drafters of this bill began to recognize this, and so they, for purposes of this resolution, included a specification that hostilities, at least for purposes of this resolution as to Yemen, includes air-to-air -air refueling. I think the effect, if this becomes law, the effect is solely to preclude air-to-air -air refueling of Saudi coalition combat operations and nothing else. And Congress will say, look, we did something. Yeah, we fixed it. It's all fixed. Yeah, I punched my fist in the air if you couldn't see that. Um, so, <laughs> How uh, can you not see that? It's a podcast. So everyone thought it was, well, there's people here. Um, some people thought Trump was sure to veto this. It was going to be his second veto after the, uh, the, the border repeal veto. Um, but there's a lot of talk that he might not. Well, because I mean, I, I suspect that the folks at DOD, after the after the political firestorm calmed down, that the folks in the DOD General Counsel's office read the bill and were like, "Wait, the only thing they're telling us we can't do is air-to-air -air refueling." Okay. Okay. We can live with that. We can we can spend that money elsewhere. We'll refuel them on the ground. Yes, and uh, which, by the way, is not covered by the statute. <laughs> exactly. No, it's okay. So I think the the only thing we're saying beyond that to point out the fecklessness of it, whether you like it or not is a different matter, but it, it does seem pretty feckless. There's been a lot of <laughs> crowing out of Congress that they have reclaimed the congressional role in war powers. Yes. Uh, I would argue that stuff like this, if anything, is, is, worse. Even, is even worse yes. than sitting on the sideline. So this is, listen, this is, you know my objection to Rand Paul, right? Rand Paul, like, holds hostage important legislation or important nominations because he wants to extract a concession. And then he, like, releases his hostage taking when he gets a concession that's, like, empty, pointless, or beyond, or beside, you know, like, it's just, Tell, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> you know, anyone who listens, who has listened to this podcast before, they know. They know. is pretty well aware of how I really feel. <laughs> um, so I, I, I guess I should, I'm of two minds of this. I am excited that Congress has realized that it once again has the power to actually do something. I am disappointed that all it could muster was this. What about, uh, speaking of mustering things, uh, mustering in a new Homeland Security uh, Secretary was a little bit of, you like that segue? Uh, it was a little I, bit of a challenge. I, I had a better segue plan. Oh, you did? Wait, let's hear it. So my segue was going to be, um, of course, you know, it would be easier to have this conversation if we had a Secretary of Defense, 
Um, since we are now at day 101 of the vacancy in the Office of Secretary of Defense, by far the longest in the history of that office. Yeah. There, will, there will not be a new one before the election. Mm-hmm. So there was a report yesterday that, that, that they might nominate Shanahan once the ethics probe is over. Oh, okay. To which my response is, ah, the Trump administration, waiting for the ethics probe to decide whether to nominate someone. Well, isn't that better than jumping ahead of the ethics probe? Yeah, I mean, they have had some bad experiences with multiple cabinet secretaries where there wasn't sufficient vetting before that. I'm all for ethics probes. So, uh, so <laughs> I'm putting that on a T-shirt. <laughs> I'm all for ethics Anyway, probes. but so like the, like the, like the Secretary of Defense, um, there also is currently no Secretary of Homeland Security. You know, we have a huge immigration crisis in this country, and the southern border is just an absolute national emergency. So let's decapitate the leadership of the two government departments that are in charge of this now, thing. In, in fairness, without weighing in on whether any of what's going on with border policy, if you actually actually do think that things are not going well at the border, changing out the leadership, that's, that's the president's prerogative. Changing the leadership, sure. Firing everybody and not nominating successors? Well, he tried to, he tried to pick a successor, well, not a but, nomination. But not nominate. But a pick. Right, so, so here we so go. So what, what went wrong with the attempt to put the head of CBP directly into the acting secretary it, role? It, it all went wrong. Um, so uh, we got the news on Sunday that uh, Secretary Nielsen um, was... Um, resigning basically because she was fired. Um, this is we need a new term for for Trump administration fired resignations. Yeah, we need uh, remember Sniglets. Yes, um, not necessarily yes. the news. Yes, we need Sniglets. something like that. So uh, Nielsen announced that she was resigning um, because apparently separating parents from children, putting the children in cages, wasn't quite aggressive enough for the Trump administration. Too soon. Um, but the, um, Nielsen initially said uh, that she was resigning effective April 7th. April 7th was Sunday. Um, and Nielsen's letter is posted on Twitter because this is how we learn about things these days. Yes. An hour after President Trump had posted two tweets. Tweet number one announcing Nielsen's resignation. Um, I'm curious whether he'd actually talked to her by that point. And tweet number two naming in that moment um, Kevin uh, McAleenan, um, who was at the time the director of CBP, Customs and Border Protection, as the acting secretary of Homeland Security. Only it turns out that wasn't really his call to make according to the relevant statute. Someone forgot to read 6 U.S.C. section 113. Um, most people forget to read that every day. Well, how about <laughs> this? Someone forgot to ask the hundreds of lawyers yes. who work for him and Hello? whose only job is to know these obscure frickin' statutes. Indeed. Or, or maybe someone did and it didn't. No, given down. what happened next, no, yeah, I no. think someone did. Yeah, this okay. looks like just this is this is understaffing or inadequate staffing of the president, or just the president decided he wants to do something and you know shoot, you know shoot first and ask the lawyer right. second. Yeah. Um, and so so what happened? What was the nature of the problem? Okay, so um, unlike other departments, the homeland security department of homeland security has a very specific order of succession that's written into the statute. Um, governing vacancies in the Department of Homeland Security. It says, basically, if the secretary is vacant, then the deputy secretary becomes acting secretary. If the deputy secretary and the secretary are vacant, then the undersecretary for management, and I cannot tell you how boring a job it is to be undersecretary management for Homeland Security, um, but that they're next in line. And what's important about the Homeland Security statute that separates it from the DOJ statute that separates it from the statute governing succession at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, separates it from the statute that governs succession at the Department of Veterans Affairs, is the Homeland Security statute says, notwithstanding Chapter 33 of Title V. Now, you may be thinking, okay, what's Chapter 33 of Title V? Chapter 33 of Title V is the Federal Vacancies Reform Act of 1998, which is the statute Trump was purporting to rely upon when he named McAleenan as the acting secretary. He thought he had statutory discretion, not Because he had done this other times. Like, this was... Trump had used the Vacancies Reform Act to name Matthew Whitaker as acting attorney general, Mm -hmm. to name Wilkie as acting secretary of Veterans Affairs, to name Mick Mulvaney as acting director of the CFPB. And I, although not everybody, think that each time he was legally correct, even if stupid. Um, But in the Homeland Security context... Um, the statute specifically says, hey, Mr. President, if there's an undersecretary for management, you cannot use the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. So big swing and a miss, failing to know this. Uh, how did they fix it? It required some awkward footwork. So a normal administration, right, probably would have had someone go to the podium and say, our bad, we made a mistake. You know, um, Claire Grady, by the way, Claire Grady, who was until Tuesday the undersecretary for management, right? Claire Grady will be the acting secretary until we figure out the next steps, right? Or a normal administration would have figured this out in advance, would have already gotten rid of Claire Grady before all this happened. Here's what happened instead. 
um, at 10.30 on Sunday night, so three hours later, Nielsen tweets again that she's agreed to stay on through April 10th to help an orderly transition of leadership at the Department of Homeland Security. Um, in other words, rather than prove that the president didn't know what he was doing, Nielsen unresigned for three days. And during those three days, the only thing she did was convince Claire Grady to resign. So my students immediately asked, you know, what, what authority did she have to unresign? And I said, well, strictly speaking, I'm quite sure that she would insist I never resigned officially. Well, she resigned policy. effective April 7th. It was right. still April 7th when she purported to unresign, right? And the right. president presumably accepted her unresignation. It's an interesting question whether that's compatible with all this, but it's neither here nor there. So if she had said I resign effective immediately, right, right, I actually think she there would be pop a, back in. I she, would think there would be a constitutional problem with saying never mind because yeah. the Senate would have something to say. About she'd that. have to. She'd have to represent that. Uh, oh, I neglected to mention, but all along at, at that moment, I already included this extender. Right. right? So shockingly, um, on Tuesday, the uh, the White uh, Secretary Nielsen tweets again um, that she's, uh, um, you know, I'm sad to announce the resignation of Claire Grady as Undersecretary for Management <laughs> and Department of Homeland Security. I'm sure she's like, oh, come on. Um, now, I should say, I mean, just to be clear, Grady is not only a 28-year veteran of government service, she was a Trump appointee. Like, this is not like, you know, a hostile Obama appointee who's in there to thwart their plans. It's just not exactly the person the president wanted. So let's engage in all these machinations because the law got in our way. So anyway, so, so by 12.01 a.m. Thursday, when Nielsen officially was no longer Secretary of Homeland Security, there was also no Deputy Secretary and also no Undersecretary. And so the DHS-specific statute slots had all been run through, reverting so we, back to... Actually, so technically, because, you know, we're lawyers, technically, um, the DHS statute still matters because it says notwithstanding the Vacancies Reform Act. But the fallback provision in the DHS succession statute is to refer to the executive order on DHS succession. The executive order on DHS succession gives the president discretion once we're past the mandatory offices to pick among these others. McAleenan was one of the people within the executive order. And so of, there you and go. Of, the, his, his acting appointment now is perfectly legal. It absolutely was not when the president did it by fiat on Sunday night. And did he? And I assume he took no official actions during that. Uh, interregnum is not the right word, although maybe it is. During his uh, faux appointment. Period. No, and indeed, Nielsen tweeted on Wednesday a picture of his swearing in Wednesday afternoon as acting secretary. Post, post rectification. Po post Grady resignation. All's well that ends well. I just, um. All just, just to say, like, guys, this is not how the government normally functions. Oh, this is the least of our problems. I, I agree it is, but but there is a broader conversation that I do think Congress ought to. I mean, grass, you know, no less a no less a sort of hardline Democratic critic of. President Trump, then Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, um, you know, um, was very critical of the sure. sort of re, you know rearranging the sort of DHS leadership. There are, I mean, I wrote a piece um, earlier this week for Slate that proposes three ways you could actually fix the Federal Vacancies Reform Act so that presidents would have flexibility when it comes to fixing vacancies, but so that it wouldn't be set up so that there were incentives, as there are right now, yeah. for presidents to basically like avoid the Senate's advice and consent role, um, you know, which presumably shouldn't be a problem if the nominee is remotely qualified, given that this is a Republican Senate. Um, we should create a world where like the president's not encouraged to avoid that process, and that's where we are right now. Yeah, there's there's no question that one of the things we're seeing here, and this is a point of agreement between us, that the uh, the role, the constitutionally required role of the Senate in confirming major appointments of, of officers, is uh, is being pretty much sidelined in favor of the uh, president's preferred approach of having his, by his own account, his preferred approach of having acting appointees. I just, prefer and, the flexibility. Yeah, no, that's, that's he says flexibility. Words, right. I hear lack of accountability. It, whatever it is, it's not the constitutional design. It's not what the founders intended. Ooh. How about that? Fighting words. Yes. All right. I, uh, get, I get very excited when Bobby gets worked up because I get worked up all rare. the time and you never get worked up. I get a couple of times across 117 episodes. You I, left me speechless a couple of times. Like, did I, I don't think I ever cussed, though. I'm very, you know, buttoned up about that. Well, not on the podcast. Not I, on the podcast. I, I've heard you curse. I'm, I'm, I'm filthy off the, off the air. This, by the way, <laughs> um, Texan, New Yorker. You call it cuss. I call it curse. Interesting. That's uh, cussing. There's an apostrophe at the end of that word. No. Um, I am not fixing to cuss. <laughs> Good on y'all. Uh, All right. Um, 
Y'all, how could y'all cannot refer I to just a wanted, I just wanted it to be in there, and y'all is all purpose, as any Texan can tell you. All right, well, speak, all I see a lot of nodding heads. Speaking of y'all, should we talk about y'all and the IRGC? Yeah, y'all got y'all got designated. Y'all got <laughs> that's a good podcast title. title. Yeah, write, write that down. I'm writing this down. We're, that's also a recurring feature of the show. Um, we're pretty impressed with ourselves sometimes with our bad humor. So uh, the Secretary of State has statutory authority to issue formal. Wait, we have a, we actually do have a real Secretary of State. Absolutely. Mike Pompeo has statutory authority to designate organizations as foreign terrorist organizations. Uh, this has several significant consequences. I'll just highlight two. One, it makes that organization join the list of entities that are effectively embargoed by uh, the material support statute at 1996 Federal Criminal Law at 18 U.S. Code 2339B. Uh, you hear about it all the time in terrorism-related cases because it's a go-to charge that effectively prohibits anyone from knowingly providing any type of support or resources, any kind of service or goods, including service of yourself as persons under their direction of control, I will note, uh, to any group that's on the list. It's a full-on embargo of those organizations backed by federal criminal penalties. The significance of adding IRGC to this list is that it provides clear grounds for prosecuting anyone who's doing business with IRGC. And IRGC is involved in lots of businesses, directly and indirectly and through cutouts. This casts a significant shadow around maybe the seedier or shadier parts of, of certain international business situations. And there's been a lot of criticism out of Europe in particular saying that, hey, wait a minute, are you going to turn around and come after this European bank or that European you know, entity? Um, there's no question this is an attempt to ratchet up the heat in, on that dimension. There are other consequences to the FDO designation, including obviously diplomatic consequences and, and rhetorical or optical consequences, but the, the criminal leverage this puts on intermediaries is where all the action is. Um, this has caused a big blow up. People are really talking about this. The Iranians turned around and said, we're, we're going to designate CENTCOM and, and others as terrorist organizations, you know, you know, back on you, kind of a kindergarten kind of response. Too quote. What's weird about the whole thing is this isn't the only sanctioning mechanism we've got. The Treasury Department's got one, too, under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, IEPA. Um, and IEPA was used by the Treasury Department last year to sanction IRGC in a very similar way, and it's backed by criminal penalties too. And in fact, part of the IRGC, the Al-Quds Force, was sanctioned by Treasury back in 2007. So I think there's, yes, significant uh, increased criminal liability for entities that do business with the Iranians here, and I think that's got some people very scared. People who are lawyers for, for a variety of non-U.S. entities are suddenly very alarmed about what this might mean for some of their shadier transactions. And I think that's a good thing. I do, too. I mean, I, so, so I have no problem in the abstract with designating the IRGC as an FTO. I am worried, as you know, about the sort of ground beat Drumbeat, the drumbeat coming from certain parts of ground swells ground, and drumbeats. Indeed, so so drum swells. Drum, um, yeah, the drum swell. Yeah. So um, I, I'm a little worried about the sort of the 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 quietly building noise surrounding whether Iran is covered by the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. Um, something you and I have talked about before. This is you know the statute Congress passed one week after 9/11 that is the principal source of our legal authority to use military force against al-Qaeda and its affiliates, you know, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, the Islamic State. Um, you and I, I think, agree that Iran is a real stretch. Absolutely. Um, but I think there's, you know, these steps optically, I think, are part of this administration's effort to increasingly connect Iran to al-Qaeda. And I have concerns about what that could mean for, you know, future sort of military operations. I, th I think we agree that were the United States ever to use military force against Iran, uh, that is not something that should be predicated on a eight, almost a 17 and a half year old statute that was designed to authorize force against Al Qaeda and those who harbor it. But that harboring provisions what's doing the tricky work here. Um, as, as we all know, the United States is also under that AMF been using force against the Afghan Taliban all these years. That we, was, we definitely all know that. Yes, I think we all know that. Well, maybe not. Maybe we're in a little bit of a, uh, a nerdy inner circle of national security obsessives. <laughs> when you and I say things like, as everybody knows, I get very... There's an unspoken, as all national security nerds like us know. So Because um, my wife listens to this podcast every once in a while. She questions our like, that for I didn't. It's like, guys, no. No, no. no. It's just us. It's not just us. 
So the, the basis for using force against the Afghan Taliban has been the claim that they, are, they were, as of fall 2001, harboring al-Qaeda, which they were indeed. And the statute, I think, was very clearly designed with a harboring clause to cover them for that purpose. And so I have no problem with that. Um, the designation of the IRGC included a, a recitation of, of claims about the IRGC that included one reference to harboring of al-Qaeda members, which indeed the Iranians do. They, there have been a number of al-Qaeda members who have had safe haven of various sorts over time in Iran. This raises this critical question. At what point on the spectrum from sort of Taliban-style 2001 out-and-out out hosting of the whole leadership and, and the bulk of the manpower of the organization from one end of the spectrum down to the there's one guy and we know he's here and we haven't done anything about it, where on that spectrum is harboring occurring for AUMF purposes? And as I told a reporter yesterday, you can read the AUMF all you want. It doesn't define harboring. This one's up for grabs, and it's sort of more of a political question as to what uh, the executive branch is willing to claim and what they might want to accomplish. I don't think having a few people that are not necessarily the, the key leaders within your borders would be enough, but what if it's the key leader? What if it's, what if it's uh, the son of bin Laden and he's been anointed the new leader? It, gets, it does actually get tricky at a certain point. It's almost like it would be a good idea for Congress to revisit the scope of the AUMF now that there are soldiers old enough to die in the war under that statute who weren't alive when it was passed. Just about. And I think we agree on that, that it should be revisited. <laughs> I think everyone agrees on that. Uh, apparently not. Well, no. Like, ask any member of Congress and they'll say, yes, absolutely. We should oh, they it. say that. Well, they don't want to actually vote on it. So um, we had like 14 other things we wanted to talk about. Yeah, um, let's ditch them. But I think we're going to ditch them in the interest of, of time and frivolity. Indeed. So, so this is just a good sort of, for folks in the audience, a good reason why you should also listen to next week's episode. Because there's more, including a case that, uh, that involves you. Yes. All right. So I, I got I got kind of thrown under the bus a little bit by the Solicitor General on Thursday. That was kind of fun. You'll have to tune into episode 118 to find out what that's all about. Because right now we want to close out our portion of this by talking about what are the greatest all-time duets. duos or duets. But you you drew this distinction, a categorical I, distinction I, between I duos have, and duets. I have an I have an argument to to advance, which is that on me. a duo is not necessarily a duet. Okay. Um, that Define your term, sir. Okay, my term. So when I hear duo, I think group that is classically a pair. Um, so for example, tonight I'm going to see my favorite band, Indigo Girls, at the Paramount Theater here in Austin. This will be how many? I've, uh, I've lost count. Okay, a lot. Um, many. Um, more, more than, I, more than a, a 39-year-old man should admit. Um, the... Um, uh, the Indigo Girls to me are a classic duo, even though they often play with additional band members, with backing vocals, etc., because they are a group that is dominantly two people. They are not to me a duet, and here's why. Even though most of their many many of their songs are just the two lead players, Amy Ray and Emily Saliers, singing together and harmonizing, etc., a duet to me to meet this interesting categorical definition is two musicians who do not usually play together. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yeah, no, I don't agree. Uh, <laughs> a, du a duet is, is characterized by two relatively equal roles, so mm -hmm. lead, lead actor level, not supporting mm -hmm. in lead, um, uh, characterized by harmony or at least extensive interplay between, between the lyrics mm -hmm. and engagement. And uh, whether there's a backing band or not, all that really matters is, is it featuring two stars. simultaneous lead singers? Two stars, two separate acts coming together no, for what? this one special song. What if they do it twice? Then, they can, then it's two duets. What it, yeah, so what if they do it on again, you know, on and on for a number of there years? There comes a point where then they're a duo. The category collapses. No, that's, just, there's a point past which you are no longer a duet, you're a duo. Where, where is that point? I don't know. This is like class. But, but so, so, so you don't bring me flowers. This is how we teach, by the way. Right? Barbara Streisand, Neil Diamond. Separate acts, right? Coming sure. together yeah. for a song where they both meet your criteria. Lionel Richie, Diana Ross. Right. Endless, love. Endless love. Arguably the best all-time duet. Exactly. These are not people who usually play together, hence their duets. Ah, no, I think, but I think the Indigo Girls, I think duo and duet, the, the distinction collapses. But I want to press you on a different aspect of it. By your, your definition, so the, the, the two You're kind the of... the one that I want from Greece. That's an odd... Olivia Newton-John and right. John Travolta, classic. But why not... So the Indigo Girls, characterized by two equally lead singers, often harmonizing to great effect. I mm -hmm. love them too. Mm -hmm. um, what about 
John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora, because man, they harmonize great together. Are They're they? not a duet. <laughs> They're not a duet. I agree, but what's the difference? Set aside duo duet. Are they different than the Indigo Girls, or is it the same thing? Because I think that's totally different. So I think it's different when the group puts itself out as, like, when the group markets itself as a duo, I think that's different from when it's like a band where, like, that's often featuring but two. Hall and Oates. Duo. Full band. Duo. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I, 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 listeners would know, I saw them in Vegas a couple, couple of weeks ago. It's not so great. I was say maybe nothing Oates, anymore. Oates is, not, Oates is not remotely equal to, to Hall in terms of their singing role, so I don't think it's the same thing. I got you. Oh, I heard some hisses. I got, I'm not, don't get me wrong. He's great. Wait, wait, wait. If it's about equal in singing role, like I think... Relatively I, equal. Sonny and Cher are not equal, and yet uh, I Got You, Babe, is one of the great duets of all time. Okay. Who, who are the great acts in this category? Great acts? Yeah. Well, so the not Indigo, songs, the, the Indigo Girls. Okay, Indigo Girls. <laughs> obviously, obviously. Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel, obviously. Indeed. Like the prototype. Those are not duets. Right? <sighs> Come on. They're, they're performing duets. Um, performing duets. All right. We, we, that's, that's, there's that's a lot of duets out there. Right. Duets. They're not a duos. great duo. They're a great duo. They're, they're inseparable. They're like bacon and eggs. Right, and they, okay, never mind, I'm not even going there. All right, anyway, all this is to say, so, so since, with that, since we aren't going to agree on defining the category, why don't you give me three of your, of your favorite duets? Song, we're talking acts or songs? Songs, songs, songs. Because um, we both agree. So I have, I have some subcategories. Both there is, you have subcategories. I have some subcategories. Of course you have subcategories. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so I want to I go country a little bit, uh, and I want to do Poncho and Lefty with Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson covering Towns Van Zant. Good, solid choice. You're shaking your head. I'm going to play that like a lot for you soon. Um, or, uh, and I'm going to follow that with Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers doing Islands in the Stream. Okay, fine. I'm with you on that one. You okay. got me there. Yeah, and that meets your category. Both of those meet your category of, you know, Merle and Willie played together a lot. They were not a duo. Th- but they did a great duet. I'm with you. All See? Right. <laughs> See? All right. I got to let you win on something. Um, <laughs> I win a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, I although I was wrong about the Spurs, by the way. Congratulations. Spurs um, playoffs. Um, so Up Where We Belong, Joe Cocker, Jennifer Warrens. So this leads to an interesting category. There's a subgenre of great like duets movie. that are from movies. Yes. Um, so that's a classic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is, all right. um, do Broadway duets count? I'm a, I was a little inclined to exclude Broadway. Like just the confrontation music. between Valjean and Javert. Is that a duet? Valjean. We're not doing last. it again. We actually We've did this once on an episode. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, By look, the way, I'm Javert. You're Valjean. Okay, yeah. My voice is deeper. Oh, yeah, okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, and, you know, you're the, the law enforcement guy. Yeah, prove, prove it. it. No. Prove it. <laughs> um, I've had the time of my life. Bill Medley, Jennifer Warren's movie duet. That, that's classic. Right? Um, like, you know. Okay, Guilty Pleasure, very similar song, very Guilty Pleasure, the cover of Smokey Robinson's Cruisin' mm-hmm. by Huey Lewis and Gwyneth Paltrow mm-hmm. in that terrible movie, literally titled Duets, which I guess reinforces your point. D- I'm trying to help, hook you up here. So, anyway, that is the... Uh, um, we'll open it up to audience audience contributions on the duo duet thing, but also other questions. So yeah, because um, otherwise, we, could, we if this were a regular a podcast where we just keep going until we're tired, this would probably be a forty five minute segment. But let's get some Q and A going yeah. with the audience now, and I will repeat into the microphone for the benefit of listeners uh, anything that's, that's asked. Yes, ma'am. So quick question: With the IRGC It's a question of, so the question is, if someone gives uh, humanitarian aid, say flood relief or whatever, some, something completely innocuous and indeed good, uh, sends it to Iran in the event of an emergency, and it ends up being administered or in the hands of the IRGC, is the, is the donor liable? Uh, I would argue no, but it depends on their mens rea. So it's a question of what you know or, or reasonably should know about who the recipient of the, of the benefit will be. If you have reason to know that it's going to get administered through the IRGC, you can't do it that way. Um, unless, you ask, unless you ask the government for a license. You can get a license. You can go to the State Department and get a license. So, yeah. So that's what it turns on. If it turns out, like, you had good intent, you didn't think, you, you tried to have it go a different way, it turned out the IRGC was involved, you would not be liable. So Over here, sir.
Oh, I like that. Okay, so the, it was a it was a clear. Yes, hands. Proving that there are actual lawyers in the room, the distinction has been formally formally drawn between the performance entity that is a duo, like Simon and Garfunkel, and the written compositional work, the, the piece of intellectual property that is meant to be performed I, I take I take the legal argument, but find me every great um, compilation CD of duets and show me a single song on those compilation CDs that are by one established group. Can I just say, I should have mentioned this earlier, that in law school I was in a duo with, uh, with Professor Aya Gruber, who's now at Colorado, and we, our, our duo was titled, very creatively, Aya and Bobby. That was the name. I mean, it's, it's just like in, Simon and Garfunkel. In case you're wondering where the brilliantly clever name of our podcast came from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does it not explain? Sir? Oh, oh, sorry, you're a Mr. Chesney, are you Batman or are you Robin? <laughs> Bruce Wayne, baby. The question was, am I Batman or Robin? Yeah, no. is, is Vladek Robin? I'm the Joker. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. So, my, I just want to state, fundamentally, dynamism is the essence of a dynamic duo. Awesome. That is awesome. I will, I will take comic book conversation all day long and twice on Sunday. Sir? There's now some information uh, coming out that says that the uh, Iranian guard apparently was involved in financing the Trump Hotel uh, in one of the uh, former satellite, I can't remember which country it was, uh, around Russia. What influence might that have uh, with respect to the events of now effectively Right, so the question is, uh, there's been a story circulating that one of the Trump Hotel projects had involved financing that involved the IRGC. I'm not sure precisely when, but at some point in the past. And how, how does that relate to this, this step? Um, so the first thing to say is all the designations and their legal consequences are, are forward-looking developments. So they, don't, they, they can certainly disrupt a pending deal. And so if, you ha if any of you lawyers in the room have a deal that involves IRGC, financing. This is important information for you. But if you previously had a deal involving RGC financing, you won't face any legal liability as a result. Um, obviously, the, the, the claim about the, the Trump organization and its possible interaction with a group that's now um, been sanctioned, and indeed, as I noted earlier, has been sanctioned since last year by Treasury, casts yet another layer of complexity, which we already have a million such layers with respect to the various international deals, including, you know, obviously the Moscow Hotel and other, other deals that Trump hotels and other Trump enterprises were engaged in. I don't think the sanctions directly impacts the politics, well, it probably impacts the politics of it, but it doesn't impact, impact the legalities of that prior story. It might give some leverage, though, to get a forgiveness of debt. Well, that's an interesting question. Can this, can this in some way be exploited uh, cynically by the administration to get a better outcome on that, right, that, that particular? We'll, we'll, we'll rescind the designation if you do X. Yeah, I think... Uh, in, in theory, possibly, but in practicality, I don't think that kind of leverage can be effectively exercised. As we were describing earlier with the, the DHS nomination mess up, there, there's a level of, of competence required to execute a move like that without it blowing up. I don't, I, I, I mean he that, said it, not me. I don't, I don't even mean that. I mean that in a descriptive, not pejorative way. Yeah, in the back. state that? Yeah, I mean, so the question was um, the sort of stories that have been out there about uh, proposals to use the military to build camps in which to detain some of the individuals who are being captured coming across the border. Um, there's a serious argument that, that such use of the military would run afoul of the Posse Comitatus Act, which makes it a, a crime of all things to use the military for domestic law enforcement unless Congress has otherwise authorized it. Um, you know, the, there are two different problems here. The first is the Posse Comitatus Act um, is only a criminal statute and has to be enforced by the executive branch, um, which has always been a problem with the Posse Comitatus Act. I mean, there was, um, 
There's a Ninth Circuit opinion from a couple years ago about whether there's an exclusionary rule that you could derive from the posse comitatus act, and the court went on banc to say, no, it's just about prosecution. So, can I, can I yeah. a two-finger interjection on that one? Yes. Um, it, it may be true that you wouldn't have, if you assume um, an improperly directed ex- presidential directive to have the military do something, it may be true that you could also then assume that DOJ would not uh, take action, no prosecutor would take action. But I think that skips over the critical role of the JAGs and indeed the non-lawyer service mm-hmm. members who will not, for the most part, certainly will not obey illegal orders. So this brings me to the second point, which is I think the law is actually muddy enough um, when it comes to the kinds of statutory authorizations that would satisfy the Posse Comitatus Act, when it comes to military assistance to civilian law enforcement, um, when it comes to uh, support functions as opposed yeah. to classical law enforcement functions. Um, but, I mean, all that's just to say, uh, let's assume that that weren't true. Let's assume you actually got all the way there. I mean, I don't think, I'm, I, there are so many instances of this administration saying no, never mind to what used to be pretty significant statutory constraints on the executive branch and Congress doing nothing. And I think the story there. Um, is that we have learned over the last couple of years, for better or for worse, and we might disagree about whether it's for better or for worse, um, that many of what we thought were these really critical legal constraints on executive power are really actually political constraints, um, where the law is doing a little bit of the work, but where you really need the political reaction um, to give the legal constraints teeth. And I think what's been missing from many, but not all, of the conversations over the last couple of years has been the lack of sort of ordinary political reaction, um, especially from the, the president's own party. Agreed. So, uh, yes, right there. And then we'll go all the way back. Is there a particular uh, company or scenario you had in mind? Just so I want to make sure I track your question properly. Okay. Company A gets hacked by China. Government gets the evidence uh, that proves it, takes it to the company. No, we're not going to pursue that. And yet the things that they've been working on, uh, at the very least, are secret. Some of them uh, higher classified than that. Why is that not a violation of our security law? Gotcha. So the, the question is, is, is describing a scenario in which you have a private sector entity, and perhaps one that's in the defense innovation base or the defense industrial base, uh, that is subject to espionage, commercial espionage from China, um, and the government learns about what's going on, that company's been hacked, important information's flowing, and, and the, it's an interesting question, that what about the scenario if the company is actually, for whatever reason, not willing to cooperate with the government in some ways? That could be a front-end question of refusing to take on the type of security that, that expenditures they ought to to protect themselves in the first instance. It could be a back-end cooperation question. Um, I've not actually thought about that one before, although I spend a lot of time dwelling on and working on cybersecurity issues. I do think that uh, we have a large question, especially with our, our defense base industries and the innovation-based industries about whether and to what extent some more some more heavy-handed regulatory approach to compel front-end protection, that's the part I think is more pressing, um, would be warranted. But of course, uh, all the industries are quite allergic to, to further regulatory intervention. And it's very hard to actually be prescriptive without locking yourself into some currently relevant technological solution that five years from now isn't even the thing you, you ought to be encouraging people to do. And the possibility that the regulatory pace of change can't keep up with the technological change, I think has helped deter that sort of, that sort of cooperation. Now, we've, we've received the, the high sign. I, I think we have one more question. One bullet point type. Sir, in the back.
So the, the, the question is sort of um, what, what has changed in the laws such that there is so much less information coming out of the government to the public, especially on matters of public concern? Yeah. So, so my view is that we are simultaneously having more access to information than ever before historically and not enough access on some things of great importance. Um, and, you know, it remains to be seen to what extent will the public see the Mueller report. I imagine in the end, eventually, we're going to see most everything. But I, I don't, I think it's all about technological change and about the politics of the moment. And I don't think we've had legal changes in recent years that are actually driving the dynamic that concerns you. What do you think, Steve? I think there have been two changes. I think one legal and one structural. I think um, courts have been less aggressive in reading FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, um, as broadly as perhaps they did at an earlier time. Um, and I think some of that's a reflection of changing time, changing judges. Um, but structurally, I think this is the bigger point. Um, and this is a place where I know you and I actually have some pretty deep-seated disagreements. Um, I actually think Congress constitutionally has a much stronger and uh, more powerful role to play in the regulation and the dissemination and the provisions for public access to information that the executive branch stamps as classified or confidential. And that historically, Congress has um, abdicated its role in that process and has, in the process, acquiesced in ever more expansive claims of the executive branch of the power to, to keep the, to, to withhold them from the public. Um, I think Congress could, if it wanted to, reclaim a lot of that territory. I think Bobby and I disagree on just how much of that territory. And that's a pretty good note to end on. We will stop releasing information to you in the form of this podcast. So we'll do our, our, so our usual close-up. He's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. There it is. Um, please, if you, if, you, if you like the show, the 1030 show is totally different from the 730 show. Um, stay safe out there. Adios. <laughs>